This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 186. Greetings, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamorph City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and keep you informed on my life and my writing. So let's get right to it, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 44 of my Metamorph City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and her team are on the trail of Callie Linder's missing boyfriend, Will Karenson. Will is the latest in a long string of kidnapping victims all throughout the city, all of whom were taken by a sinister thousand-year-old apocalypse cult called the Brotherhood of the Sepulchre. Other abductees include Jared Tamlin, Kate's former psychologist at MCPD's Precinct 9, and Silas Kenning, Callie's old mentor, and the unofficial arbiter for all contracts between the Runners Guild and their clients. While Kate and the others searched for clues, Will was getting information of his own. He was placed in an underground cell next to Jared, who told him everything the cult had told him. That they worship an imprisoned deity called the Shackled God. That they believe in a savior called the Vessel, who will be filled with the Shackled God's power. And that there's a chance that Jared is this Vessel, in which case the cult would be sworn to obey him. Jared promised Will that if he survived the trials and proved he was their savior, he would command the Brotherhood to let Will go. But soon thereafter, the Brotherhood took Will away for questioning. Jared warned them not to hurt the boy, but when the cultists brought Will back to his cell hours later, Will was unconscious and unmoving. Jared had no chance to find out whether Will was all right, because he was immediately bound and gagged and carried away for his last two trials. Using careful divination magic, combined with the maps and supercomputers at Silas's headquarters, Kate and her allies traced Will's location to an abandoned water treatment plant on the Lower West Side. The surface buildings of the plant were all torn down decades ago, save for a single dilapidated utility shed. Morgan used her mist form to sneak inside the shed and unlock it from the inside, revealing a staircase leading down into darkness. Accompanied by Lizzie, John, and Michael, and with Callie keeping a lookout from the skyway overhead, Kate and Morgan set out to find Will before it's too late. The Lost and the Least a novel of Metamore City. Written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 44 Kate had studied the plans of the water treatment plant in detail before they left, 
and she called up the images in her mind as they walked. The staircase they now descended was the main fire escape for the underground portion of the facility. There had once been two other escapes at the north and south ends of the complex, but Kate had seen no sign of them up topside, so she presumed they had been filled in when the surface buildings had been leveled. The only lighting came from motion-sensitive LED panels placed intermittently on the walls. They appeared to be battery-powered and stuck to the walls with adhesive tape. Kate and her team went down four flights and stopped at the landing for the first sublevel, which had a steel security door with a narrow window of reinforced glass. Kate looked through the window, but saw nothing but darkness. Morgan gestured to Kate, and Kate stepped back to let her take her place. The vampire peered into the darkness for a moment, then pressed her ear up against the glass. After a few seconds, Morgan tried the door handle. It was unlocked, and she opened the door a crack, then stopped and listened. Kate could hear the distant sound of rushing water echoing up from somewhere nearby. Morgan put her nose into the crack and sniffed. Her jaw set, and she closed the door silently before turning to the others. They've come this way, she said, keeping her voice low. I smell humans, and human byproducts. That could be the sewer system, Lizzie murmured. No, this is fresher than that. I think we're close. Could you pick out Will's scent? Kate asked. If I'm close enough. I only met him once, and he was freshly bathed. All right. In my dream, Jared said they were being kept somewhere he could hear the river. That probably means they're on this level. Kate pictured the facility map in her head again. There are some big storage lockers down here where they used to keep hazardous chemicals. If you wanted to lock someone up, that would be the best place to do it. Morgan nodded once. Lead the way, darling. They opened the door again and passed through silently. The hallway ran ahead for about five meters, then turned into a catwalk over a large, open chamber. Kate couldn't see what was down there, though she suspected it was one of the processing facilities that had been used to treat the water before flushing it to the river. A set of stairs spiraled down into the darkness. Kate ignored it and continued on across the catwalk. The floor of the catwalk was made of sections of loosely fitting steel mesh on a steel frame, which made an awful, rattling clang with Kate's first footstep. She winced at the noise, then froze, listening. She didn't hear any shouts of alarm or approaching footsteps. She looked questioningly at Morgan, who shook her head. Kate breathed a sigh of relief. Lizzie stepped forward then, putting a hand out in a wait gesture. She crouched down and examined the grating in the uncertain light of the adhesive lamps. After a moment, she drew out her phone, shining the light at the plates from just a few centimeters away. Experimentally, she put out one hand and placed it flat against a spot near the left railing, where the grating rested against the framework. She leaned forward, putting her weight onto it, but the grating remained silent. She stood back up, leaning on the railing for support, and carefully stepped onto the spot. The grating made no sound. The leopard morph looked at the rest of them, pointed at her own feet, then turned and repeated the process, finding the next spot where the grating was secure. She stepped forward to this next spot, and Morgan took her place on the first one. 
In this manner, they picked their way carefully across the catwalk, with Lizzie scouting the way and the others following in her wake, one careful step at a time. Once they were on the far side, the path sloped slightly downward and came to an intersection, with identical-looking passageways in three directions. Kate consulted the map in her head and followed the path to the right. There was still no sign of the cultists. Where are they? Kate wondered. Did they leave Will here alone? After about ten meters, they came to a short flight of stairs, which took them down about three meters and exited into the middle of a long, dark tunnel. There were no more adhesive lights here, so Lizzie turned on her phone's torch app again, lifting it high overhead and sweeping it around. This seemed to be a much older structure than the water treatment plant, with arching stone walls and a strong scent of mildew. The sound of the river could be heard close by, maybe just on the other side of the far wall. The stones underfoot were slick and damp. Kate could feel the flow of ambient manna nearby, the strong and heady rush of the ley line that followed the river's course. This must be one of the access tunnels for the old sewer line, Morgan said. Are we on the right path, Kate? Kate called up the map in her memory again. Yeah, this is it. I could see all the rooms and passageways, but they didn't all have labels. I guess they must have built their hazardous chemical storage out here to keep it out of the way. More likely they used rooms that were already here, Lizzie said. If you were planning a storage facility from scratch, I suspect you wouldn't put the hazardous chemicals this close to a major waterway. Kate thought about the river, which flowed above ground through the Broadfield Borough and several outlying communities before emptying into the Sea of Stars, and imagined a toxic chemical spill draining into it. She shuddered. I think I'm starting to understand why they shut this place down. She gestured to the others, and they walked on. They'd gone about fifteen meters down the passage when a pulse rippled through the ambient mana field. Kate stopped in her tracks. She turned to John and Morgan. Did you feel that? Neither John nor Morgan was a wizard, but vampires and incubi were inherently magical beings, and they had a natural sense of the mana around them as a result. John had cocked his head, like a dog hearing an odd noise. Morgan's expression was distant and thoughtful. Another pulse came, stronger this time. It made Kate's skin tingle, flushing hot and cold. And it left a lingering impression behind, like a bitter aftertaste on the back of her tongue. That's death manna, Morgan said quietly. Kate knew it was true as soon as she said it. The death manna wasn't much in comparison to the flow of the ley line, but it was the driving force behind the pulses. The will that was shaping that larger pattern was being powered by death manna. The flywheel, Lizzie said. They're releasing the power they stored, aren't they? Kate nodded grimly. Starting to, anyway. John still looked puzzled. What are they trying to do? Poison the river? Kate shook her head. Plenty of easier ways to do that. This is something else. Another pulse washed over them, stronger yet. Kate couldn't tell what the purpose was, but the pulses seemed to be setting up a wave in the ley line. It seemed a lot like the way Kate had built up resonance within her magic circle when she prepared the location spell for Will, only on a much bigger scale. 
The idea of someone building a resonance effect outside the protective confines of a circle was ambitious enough, but to do it on an entire ley line? No wonder the cultists had been flywheeling mana for weeks. Lizzie touched her arm, nudging her out of her thoughts. How close are we to the storage lockers? Kate thought about it. Just a couple hundred meters. Let's go. Morgan put up her hand. I'll take the lead from here, darling. If there's death mana in the air, they could have something unpleasant waiting for you. Better if I'm the one to trigger it. Kate grimaced. She didn't like the idea of using Morgan as a walking minesweeper. But the vampire was a lot more resilient than any of the rest of them, and they didn't have time to argue about it. All right, we'll hang back about ten meters just in case. Morgan smiled at her, then took off down the tunnel at a sprint faster than highway skimmer traffic. For profit's sake, Kate growled. Come on! The rest of them ran after Morgan, who had already disappeared into the darkness ahead. More pulses of mana washed over them, each one gaining in strength. The bitter taste of death mana increased with each successive wave. Kate's stomach lurched as the mana washed over her. If she'd had time to prepare, she could have fashioned a shield against the effects, but there was nothing in her usual bag of tricks for a situation like this. She gritted her teeth, fought back the nausea, and kept running. There were no explosions or gunshots, so Morgan's sudden dash did not seem to have triggered any previously hidden defenses. At last, Kate could see her again, her deathly pale face shining in the glow of Lizzie's torch. The vampire's head seemed to be floating weirdly close to the ground. As they drew closer, Kate saw that she was crouching beside a wall of steel mesh, her black duster concealing the rest of her body. She seemed to be inspecting something on the wall, though Kate couldn't make out what it was. Is that him? Kate asked. She spoke at a conversational tone, knowing that Morgan could hear her without her having to shout. Morgan nodded. She waited to say anything further until Kate and the others were a few meters away. Lizzie shone the light through the grating, revealing a man lying sprawled on the floor. Kate looked closely and after a moment she saw his chest rising and falling. Alive, she thought, with a sudden surge of relief. We didn't fail this time. Morgan was inspecting the hinges of the cage door. I think I can break these. It will be terribly loud, though. If the cult doesn't know we're here already, they will then. I could go back for Callie, Lizzie offered. She could pick the lock. She could, but that would mean giving up her sniper's nest. Kate said. I want that high ground in case the cult tries to cut off our exit. Do it, Morgan. Right. Stand back, dears. They did so. Morgan took a step back, then another, gauging the distance to the hinge. Then she delivered a lightning-fast roundhouse kick, almost faster than Kate's eye could follow. She struck the hinge with the steel-reinforced heel of her leather boot. There was a deafening crack, and pieces of the shattered hinge pin went flying across the floor of the cell. The bottom corner of the door buckled inward under the impact, creating a stress point in the metal about a meter up from the bottom. A second kick made another stress point in the bottom of the door, at roughly the same distance out. Morgan reached down and grabbed the corner of the door with both hands, 
braced her feet against the steel frame of the cage, and pulled, letting out a grunt of effort. The corner folded outward with a shriek of distressed metal, bending at the stress points her kicks had created. When she had folded the metal out a little more than perpendicular to the wall, she stepped back and inspected her work, brushing her hands on her pants. Morgan's handiwork had created a neat triangular opening into Will's cell, big enough to crawl through with relative ease. It had also made enough noise to wake the dead, but apart from the continuing pulses of death mana through the ley line, now coming every twenty seconds or so, there was no sign of any activity from the cult. Good work, hon, Kate said. She turned to John and Lizzie. You two keep an eye out. Make it fast, Kate, John said. He knelt beside the cage, as close to the wall as possible, and pointed his shotgun downrange. We're sitting ducks out here. Copy that, Kate said. She crouched down and slipped through the opening into the cell, Morgan following close behind her. Kate knelt beside Will and pulled out her own phone, shining the light on him to check for injuries. She didn't see anything bleeding or obviously broken, but he had dozens of little red marks on his flesh, probably electrical burns from a stun wand or something similar. He was covered in a sheen of sweat, and his whole body trembled. Morgan checked his pulse, then put an ear to his mouth to hear his breathing. She felt his forehead with the back of her hand. He's in shock, she said, her voice low and steady. Probably bleeding somewhere. Here, shine that light on his face. Kate did so, and Morgan pulled back his eyelid. She sucked air between her teeth, a dismayed sound. Oh dear, this looks like a concussion. Much worse than the one you had. Pupils fixed and dilated. He's likely bleeding into his brain. Kate, this is very bad. Another pulse of death mana ran through the ley line, so strong that Kate's muscles convulsed and she dropped the phone. That can't be helping him either, she muttered. Is there anything you can do? I don't have the equipment for something like this. He needs a hospital. She looked up at Kate, straight into her eyes. Urgently, or he's going to die. Kate made a frustrated sound deep in her throat. <sighs> Fuck. If we call E.S. for an ambulance, Shaw's gonna figure out where we are. Can't you just, like... She waved a hand, incoherently. Stabilize him for a little while? Buy him some time? Morgan opened her mouth for what looked like an angry retort. But then she hesitated. There is something I could do, she said slowly. But you're not going to like it. Kate spread her hands wide. We're not spoiled for choice here. What is it? Morgan swallowed visibly. I can... feed him some of my blood. Her voice was barely above a whisper. Kate stared at her, hardly believing what she was hearing. She searched Morgan's eyes, hoping this was some kind of horrible joke. Morgan stared back at her, unblinking. Kate looked away, gritting her teeth. No. What else you got? Morgan's voice turned pleading. Kate, I'm not saying I would make him a thrall. No. Kate snapped, rounding back on her. You're saying you'll make him a ghoul. Morgan winced at the word. 
Kate, I'm not that kind of person. You know I'm not. I thought I did, until you seriously suggested turning this kid into a blood slave. I won't, Morgan insisted, sounding desperate now. I swear I won't. I'm just trying to save his life. Kate stabbed a finger at her. Vampire blood is addictive, Morgan. You damn well know it is. So are opiates. That doesn't mean we shouldn't use them when indicated. Oh, really? I was a narc, Morgan. You know how many junkies I pulled in who got started on those fucking pills? You doctors have no idea what consequences. Hey! John's hand grabbed Kate's shoulder, shaking her. His other hand fell on Morgan's. Kate looked up at him, and her breath caught in her throat. John had called up his aura, the visible manifestation of his infernal heritage. Shadows boiled around him like smoke, and his eyes glowed a fiery yellow. It was, quite literally, impressive as hell. Kate's mouth fell open. She stopped talking. John spoke again, his voice stern but calm. Kate, if we survive this, you are going to talk to somebody about your hatred of vampires and how it's hurting your best friend. But right now, we do not have the time. So pull your head out of your ass and make a decision. Either we scrub this mission right now and get this kid to a hospital, or you let Morgan give him the blood. He stepped back and crossed his arms. And if you don't decide in the next minute... I'm picking the kid up and carrying him out of here myself. Kate stared blankly at John, too many thoughts jockeying for position on her lips. I don't hate all vampires. And, who the hell do you think you are giving me an ultimatum? And, if we miss this chance to stop the cult, we might never find them again. And, how can I make that decision for Will? And... Am I really hurting Morgan? She looked over at her friend, her best friend. Morgan knelt beside Will, checking his pulse again, looking worried. She's a healer, Kate thought. That's who she is inside. You know that. She didn't ask for all the rest of this. For the super strength, for the mist form, for the battle instincts. But you're using her for all those things, aren't you? Why is this different? And once again, in her perfect, indelible memory, Kate saw the woman without a face. She had been a ghoul, a servant of the Vampire Syndicate. She was what the vamps could make of an ordinary human being. A tool. A weapon. A slave. But Morgan knows what it's like to be a slave. Kate thought back to the hell they had rescued her from when she'd belonged to Braddock in body and soul. Kate shuddered. No, if there was one thing she knew about Morgan, it was this. She never, ever wanted to make anyone a slave like she had been. And if Kate was wrong about that, if she'd misjudged her best friend that badly, then she was too big a fool to be doing this work anyway. All right, Kate said, softly. You're right. It's the only way. She looked up at Morgan, making herself meet those yellow-green predator's eyes. I trust you, Morgan. Do it. 
save him. Morgan closed her eyes, just for a moment, and Kate thought she saw an invisible weight lifted off her. She looked down, took Will's head in her hands, angled it gently back, and opened his mouth. Then she opened her own mouth, extended her fangs, and pressed them down into the thick, meaty base of her thumb. Blood began to well up from the wounds, thick, sticky, and blue-black. Kate knew that blood didn't flow naturally. Morgan was calling it forth from her reserves, channeling it down her arm and into her hand by pure force of will. Kate could smell the magic in that blood, and it reeked of death manna, but it was also imbued with a measure of Morgan's own power, the essence that made her a vampire. Morgan put the bleeding hand to Will's lips and let the blood dribble down his throat. And that's the end of Chapter 44. Come back next time when Morgan and Will deal with the consequences of her emergency treatment, and the Brotherhood leaves them a nasty surprise. Kristen Lamb said, The surest path to success is to learn to have a healthy relationship with failure. If we aren't failing, then we aren't doing anything interesting. So come along with me as we explore my own successes and failures. Here's your weekly writing report. In the last two weeks, I wrote 8,542 words over the course of 13.75 hours for an average writing speed of 621 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 203 days without breaking my chain. I've been working on the edits for Homecoming, and I've made a lot of progress. Based on the feedback from my beta reader, I've written three new chapters that do a better job of introducing new readers to the world and the characters. Once I finish this new opener, I'm going to chop out large portions of the original chapters 1 and 2 and probably merge them together, since a lot of the exposition in those chapters is no longer needed. I think I might also write a new final chapter to bring the characters back to Metamore and show how their experience has changed them. We'll see how it feels once I finish the rest of the edits. Over on the Patreon campaign, we have a new subscriber this month. Say hello to Stuart. If you like my fiction and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the single best way to support me. Roughly 91% of what you donate goes directly to me, which is a higher rate of return than for any other revenue stream. If you donate at the $3 level or higher, you get access to sneak peeks, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. This week I posted the new Chapter 1 for Homecoming. If you're over 18 and want to read a hot scene between Kate and John, come check it out. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the reward levels and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. And now, the feedback. Simeon posted this question on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group, after I released Chapter 43 of The Lost and the Least. He writes, Okay, I have to know. What happened to Morgan's clothes when she discorporated to slip under the door? Was she naked on the other side? 
Good question, Simeon. This is a problem all fantasy writers have to figure out when transformation magic is involved. Clothing usually isn't magical in itself, so it could potentially pose a big problem for characters who don't tend to stay in one form. For Metamore City, the answer is different depending on the type of magic involved. For living characters who have an inherent shape-shifting talent, such as cursed folks, werewolves, incubi, and succubi, clothing doesn't change with the person, unless they're like Selindi and splurge on enchanted clothes. If a werewolf shifts from human form into wolf form or hybrid form, they're probably going to tear up their clothes in the process, and they'll be naked when they come back. In this case, the magic is tied to their body. Anything that's not part of the body isn't affected by the change. For vampires, though, it's different. There's a lot of vampire lore that shows vampires changing into mist form, or turning into bats or wolves, and then changing back and they still have all their clothes with them. It appears that the pattern of their clothes is somehow stored along with the pattern of their bodies, and when they take on a new form, all that information gets stored in some kind of extra-dimensional space or metaphysical coding, so they can immediately get it back when they change back. Vampires aren't the only creatures who do this, either. Powerful mages and dragons and human guys have both been shown changing form and taking their clothes with them. In the world of Metamore City, all of these beings have something in common. They all have magery, the ability to channel and store mana and perform magic. And I think that's the difference. For people who are cursed, the magic they use to shift is something that was done to them. It's a persistent effect that lingers on in their bodies, which they don't have the power to tweak on the fly. For Incubi and Succubi, their bodies are an extension of their divine essence, and while they can use essence to reshape their bodies in lots of different ways, they can't turn it into something inert, like a pair of pants. For creatures with magery, though, the vamps, the dragons, the master wizards, shape-changing is just another spell, which can have whatever dimensions they have the power and talent to apply to it. Their magic isn't something that was done to them, it's something they do to themselves, and that means they can do it to their clothes, too. Now, Morgan is a very young vampire, so she doesn't have very much she can do yet with her magery. Turning into mist form is like a novice sorcerer's spell. She can do it, but she doesn't really understand what she's doing, or how she's doing it. She just has a knack for it. And for vampires, the default setting of the mist form spell is that they take their bodies and their clothes, and maybe a pound or two of gear, if it's something they're very familiar with. Over time, Morgan could learn to do more with this spell, but so far the only thing she's learned is how to do it relatively fast. You'll remember that in Things Unseen she fogged out in 23 seconds, which was fast enough to avoid splattering herself on the pavement outside Kapler Tower. She had all her clothes when she reincorporated after that one, too. Thanks for the question. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. 
My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.